Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Now, to introduce the Rattling Wall issue number four is Michelle Myring, and she's the founding editor of Rattling Wall and is the director of programs at Penn Center USA. Hi, guys. Can everyone hear me? We're doing good. I think this is the biggest crowd we've ever had at Skylight. Look at all these friends. All right, so thank you for the introduction. We're really happy to be back at Skylight tonight. We launched issue four in December 2013 at Bootleg, so we're back on the book tour tonight. If you don't know what The Rattling Wall is, it's a literary journal. We publish short fiction, travel essays, and poetry. The book is published by Narrow Books. Do we have any Narrow Books people in the house tonight? No, maybe not tonight, but we're published by Narrow Books, and we're funded by Penn Center USA, which is a literary nonprofit based here in Los Angeles. Um, I always love the Skylight stop. We've brought all four books to Skylight, so this is a, an important stop, you know, as we release each issue, so thanks very much to Skylight for hosting us, and the only rule here is that you all sound like you're having the best night of your lives, because we're, that we're filming the the podcast and so when I post this later I want like constant hollering and cheering and big claps and yeah yeah uh, we, I'm going to do a really short introduction tonight because we have booked the reading with uh, seven readers. So we have seven contributors from the book here to read their short fiction, travel essays, and poetry for you. Before we get started, and I'm not going to sing directly into the microphone, you've noticed that there's a cake up here accompanying the ice chest. We have a birthday in the house, one of our readers. So we're all going to sing happy birthday to Erica Schickel. Are you guys ready? That's right. We're going to need to get a lot more excited than that. Are you ready? One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Erica. Happy birthday. right here. I stopped singing at a certain point so you two could take over. So like I said, we have seven contributors uh, here to read tonight. We have Ben Pack, Minaz Sahibzada, Brady Hames, Ron Gutierrez, George Ducker, Ben Laurie, and Erica Schickel. So welcome all of you. You guys are free.
free to, you can't cut into the cake because that's rude, but if you want to sneak around and have beer as long as no one's reading in between breaks, please do so. As we were wheeling this out of the pen office tonight, I thought, are we going to drink all of this beer? And then I remembered that we were coming to Skylight, and Sky, we, al we always really do it well at Skylight, so we've already taken out like half the chest. We only have half more to go. Um, so stick around for a drink afterward. We'll also sign books if you have any questions about the rattling wall, submitting to the rattling wall. Our next deadline is May 1st. So I'm happy to answer any of those questions. I'll stick around for a while after. So let's start with Ben Pack. Ben lives and writes in Los Angeles, a 2012 Master of Professional Writing graduate from USC. He currently teaches at USC's undergraduate writing program. This is his first published essay, which is always a really huge thrill for me. So please welcome Ben. It's also my first public reading, so if you like lower your expectations, then maybe I can like try to exceed them, right? Um, so I probably should start in the beginning, but I'm going to start in the middle because it's the part I like the most. Um, so the only things you need to know is it's 2008, and I'm in Valparaiso, Chile, uh, which has a lot of hills. So in America, my friends were celebrating. Obama had been elected the previous day. I was happy, but the victory felt anticlimactic from the other side of the globe. I watched the election on a small TV in the hostel with two American girls who seemed to think that the greatest benefit of an Obama win would be that they no longer feel stigmatized by a national association to President Bush. I hated such expats, the ones who sewed Canadian maple leaves onto their bags but couldn't name the prime minister or remember that the capital is Ottawa, not Toronto. I had to keep leaving and coming back to check the vote tallies as though furtively glancing in on a Thanksgiving football game mid-meal. These young women spoke with the narcissistic authority of cable news anchors, although it was something else that made me dislike them. Their certainty, perhaps. None of the other foreigners in the hostel cared much, and why should they? I don't follow the elections in Germany or Australia. Chile is also east of the US, although it feels like it should be due south of California. Valpo actually shares the same longitude as Boston, and because of time zone quirks, it's an hour ahead. As a result, I stayed up until a few big states went blue, and then I went to bed. There were no impromptu street parties, as there were in LA, no gatherings at the White House to sing those taunting steam lyrics, na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye. No champagne, no cigars. The next day, the people of Valparaiso, Los Porteños, literally the port people, went about their business as if nothing had happened, even though I felt as if everything was supposed to have changed. Some of the Chilean press appeared strangely hostile, too. One headline ran, Alfan un negro por venir, and depicted a big lip drawing of Obama muttering, e e u u. To me, it looked like an offensive slur, even after figuring out that negro means black and e e u u is the abbreviation for the USA. <laughs> I still felt unsettled. Maybe it was my state of mind. I often see things the way I want while ignoring others. But the direct translation, in the end, a black future, felt like an ill omen, albeit one I couldn't fully comprehend. The newspaper seemed to contradict my perception of events too, that this election was a good thing, and that juxtaposition poked a nerve against my isolation. I couldn't reconcile my feelings with the hope and optimism Obama promised back home. I felt adrift, and I write that not to be melodramatic or wallowing in self-pity, but for anyone who has traveled, and especially traveled abroad, there's a moment when you feel a sort of disconnect with the place you are no matter how much you love it. And I loved Valparaiso, perhaps more than any other city I've known. 
a sensation inevitably sinks in that you don't belong, that you are not of this place as much as you crave it. The businesswoman walking past in her tight coral suit, the sailor in his navy uniform and white cap, the girl at the pastry shop who always smiles and sells you media lunas and palmeritas for a quarter each. They will go about their lives without you and you will never see them again, although they will stick in your mind because in the moment you will wonder, what is it like to be these people and what would it be like to know them, to befriend them, fall in love, marry one of them and live here? What would it be like to climb these hills every day and grow calves, calf muscles the size of large fillets? Or live in one of the rainbow colored homes that overlook the harbor below? And for me, the election was one big yank. It pulled me from the fantasy like a current of ice water, even as I longed to stay. I felt a sense of wonder everywhere I looked, and I wrote page after page in my journal. The ex-jail turned into art exhibit, gallery, wild derelict place. The not straight stairs designed as if by MC Escher to go up and down and then back where you began. The air that smells of hyacinth and rose. Birds sing, harp music plays in a cafe, and people slowly walk along a wide paseo that could be suspended on a cloud. Except I couldn't write what I was supposed to. I had planned to be like Hemingway, or at least my version of <laughs> Hemingway, who travels the world writing in cafes where the coffee is black and the end of one cigarette lights the next one for hours after hours after throat-burning days. But I am not that writer. Uh, I do my best in the same space, same desk, same apartment, same city. New things distract me. Even a carbon copy Starbucks provides too much simulation. <laughs> I had also insisted upon completing a screenplay, a thriller, uh, which had nothing to do with Valparaiso, Chile, South America, or really anything relevant to any of my experiences. Finishing a draft and selling it upon my return was the unspoken goal of the trip, and it was about as realistic as traveling to Alaska to paint the flowers of Provence to sell at Sotheby's of London for a million dollars. What's more, the story was about a college student who discovers that his rich uncle is actually a murderer, so in other words, it was Hitchcock's shadow of a doubt. Um, initially, I thought myself clever enough to pull this story off in a a quote, fresh and exciting way, but shortly before arriving in Valparaiso, a writer who I much respected shot me an email to say that the endeavor was doomed. Uh, he sugarcoated things a bit. Uh, doomed is my word, not his, but he thought I shouldn't try to ape and master. Hollywood is full of such people, he wrote, and they are called hacks. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. What's amazing that you guys didn't hear is I went to Ben when I saw him and I was like, so you have to read first. And he was like, I love reading first. Like that's first public reading. As in like, I love reading for the first time. Um, you did a wonderful job. Minaz is our second reader tonight. Minaz Sahibzada was born in Pakistan and raised in Southern California. She was a 2009 Penn Center USA Emerging Voices Fellow in Poetry. She's the author of the chapbook Tongue Tied, a memoir in poems. Please welcome Minaz. Happy Tuesday. <laughs> So I'm going to read three poems, and the first poem is a memory of high school and a memory of growing up in a South Asian family, and arranged marriage is the topic. It's called Yellow Tulip. When I was 14, my mother wasn't reading The Stranger. She feared American dangers, wanted to arrange my marriage to a 32-year-old Muslim doctor. He was balding and drove a red Mustang convertible, which made me think of the older boys at school. Once when my parents were out seeking Lahore in Los Angeles, he phoned the house, asked me if I wanted to see this Bollywood film downtown. 
but I sensed his voice slipping under my shirt, so I told him I had to study. <laughs> a month later, his family flew down from Canada to meet me. I wore a black and gold dress, stood tall like a tree. For three days, we toured the coast, clinked fortune cookie toasts in Indian restaurants. For three days, this balding doctor winked me Hindi love songs with his eyes, blinked his half-moon pickup lines. Ami told me if I said yes, I'd be a yellow tulip for life. But every time he clutched in a knife, I felt the blades of his desire digging into my wrists. The sun was blinding at the beach where our mothers grilled kebabs. I'd stare out at the sea, use my gunless reach to kill time, collect shells, watch the gulls shriek east. The next poem is, thank you, is about aging, and then it turned into a poem about God. It's called Between the Hangers. I stopped acting 18 at 30, started wearing petticoats, baking cakes, began using words like irreversible and certainly. Even spiritual slipped into my vocabulary. I planted a garden in my mouth and bought miniature dog sculptures from a card shop downtown. In the evenings, I'd read Jane Austen novels while making dinner. The settings on my car radio changed from classic rock to classical. Sometimes over lunch, I'd trace people's auras, not worried about being called the eccentric schoolgirl. My clothes changed from dark to lavender. Sundays, I saw God peering at me between the closet hangers, sometimes holding a tiny scroll. It might have been a cigarette. Still, I blinked hard when I wasn't sure. God was certainly a non-smoker. At worst, an ex-smoker. <laughs> Heaven, I imagined, smelled like a river darkened by cloves. But God was once 18 too, when the hands are eager to clutch and choices seem reversible. Is this why his visits were more like lurks? These days, the kind world presses against the shadows in my mind, and when I sit down for afternoon tea, I cross my legs. I spend more time in the kitchen now, slicing onions and mincing garlic. I alphabetize my spices. Often I see hints of sky above my stove. The kitchen smells of mountain peaks, but it's in my closet where I store my shoes and masks that God calls on me in the dark. And finally, if you've ever consulted a psychic for relationship advice or in the midst of a breakup, you might relate to this. It's called the white dress. The psychic slide, he didn't call on Tuesday. The whole weekend passed and still the phone silence predicted nothing. I had clothes to wash. Sweaters and scarves lay dormant across my bedroom floor like petals off a vase. I called hope and charity. Moonbeam, and lovely too. Each day I surfed the websites of clairvoyance with a Coke in my hand. The headlines railed against sugar, still I clung to the cold drops of sweetness, forgot to load discs in the CD player, forgot the climbing interest rates on my credit card, dialed and asked for a shooting star, waiting for the operator to connect. Monday, she said, Monday your luck will change, and by April you'll find Cupid sitting on your left shoulder again. You'll be writing odes to breakfast, the resilience of men. But Monday came and went, and still I forgot the CDs. 
The petals on my bedroom floor grew wilder, mixed with the sudden crunch of leaves, and I spent the evenings hiding under a blanket, praying for a text from God, or someone else who saw the past, present, and future simultaneously. Someone pregnant with answers who might say, it's time to do your laundry and put on the white dress, the one you wore the night he pulled you close, asked how often you read your horoscope, the night you kissed as though winter might never end as though some hippie medium with flowers in her hair had seen the moment years ago in a dream on a calm, quiet night in Athens, Georgia. Thanks. Every time I come back, there are more people here. This is really extraordinary. Uh, Brady is our next reader tonight. Where is Brady? Do I see Brady? Okay, Brady, Brady, I just realized I've never said your last name out loud. Is it Hames? It's Hamas. Hamas. It's a really good thing I asked. Uh, Brady has appeared, or uh, Brady's work has appeared, or is forthcoming. Brady has appeared, or is forthcoming, in Beecher's, Guernica, and Harper Perennial's 40 Stories. He works as a film and television editor. Please welcome Brady. Um, thank you all for coming. Thanks, Michelle, for organizing this event. I'm going to read something that is not actually in the, in the rattling wall. Um, this is the beginning of a short story. It's called Barbados by Herself, and um, someone once read it and said that it reminded them of how Stella got her groove back if Stella had failed to get her groove back. And um, <laughs> that always seemed like a pretty apt description. So um, yeah, Barbados by Herself. The plane lands with a soft touch and a round of applause. She looks around the cabin and adds a few small claps to the celebration of successful air travel. Her name is Helen Barrington and she is 63 years old and she has come by herself to a tiny Caribbean island she knows almost nothing about. She has only the address of a guest house scribbled on a post-it note advertising a cholesterol medicine she can't pronounce. 60 seconds she has been on the ground. 60 seconds and already she wants to leave. Helen deplanes and feels the island air embrace her like a moist cape. This morning she was pulling a suitcase over a frozen Minnesota sidewalk, and now she is in the heart of the tropics, the effect like moving from a very cold room to a very warm one. She removes her sweater and fishes her sunglasses from her purse. After flying for seven hours, she is surprised by how familiar everything looks, a landscape not unlike her sister's home in Florida. She had imagined cinder block buildings with thatch roofs, emaciated farm animals, clouds of flies, but the airport is surprisingly modern and she feels a shot of guilt for having expected so little. She locates her suitcase at the baggage claim, clears customs, and takes a cab to the guest house Margaret had booked online. Margaret was Helen's tennis partner and the woman who was supposed to accompany her on this trip. But Margaret came down with bronchitis two days before they were scheduled to leave, and rather than forfeit the non-refundable airfare, Helen decided to make the trip alone. This is her first time traveling by herself, and she feels strangely vulnerable, as if there's something on this island that wants to kill her. The guest house is 100 yards from the shore, a six-room structure named after its owner, Leo, whose name is lit in cursive neon above the entrance. Welcome, welcome, Leo says, taking her suitcase and ushering her inside. He shows her to a room, which is small and without air conditioning. Tiny lizards dart across the walls, and the bed is twin-sized and very firm. There's a communal bathroom down the hall and a towel stained a disconcerting shade of yellow folded on the bed. Leo tells her about the complimentary breakfast in the lobby every morning and the Mexican joint that does a good fish taco. Also, he says, if you don't have plans tonight, my band's playing a show at the Thirsty Dog. We're called Fruits in the Maytals and we go on at 10. 
It's a $5 cover, but just tell them you're staying with Leo and they'll let you in for free. Thanks, I'll think about it, Helen says, though the truth is she will not. She hasn't been to a concert in 20 years, and she doesn't intend to break that streak by jamming out to a band named after a smoothie. <laughs> when Leo finally leaves, she changes into her swimsuit and sets off to find the ocean. She crosses the street and cuts through the lobby of an upscale hotel with access to the beach. The sand is white like her legs, and the water is a shade of blue that looks bejeweled and very expensive. She spreads her towel in the fractured shade of a palm tree, then walks into the ocean and floats on her back, watching planes descend toward the island while her mind recounts six months of crippling despair. For 38 years, her name was Helen Jurgens, but Jack Jurgens, the only man she'd ever loved, left her for Gloria, the golf pro at their country club, a woman he described as dangerous. Helen laughed when she heard this, laughed because she knew there was nothing dangerous about golf pros. Jack said he loved Helen, he really did, but he loved Gloria too, maybe a little more because it was so new. He said they were not young people anymore, and this life was folding in on them, and now was the time to find a little joy before the curtain went down. The problem with Jack was that even after he was gone, he wouldn't leave. As soon as Helen had arrived at some sort of peace, Jack would reappear like a vindictive gopher, as if to remind Helen of everything she had lost, of everything she was not. She turned on the TV one evening to find her ex-husband and his new girlfriend standing in front of a small airplane dressed in matching skydiving jumpsuits and speaking in terrible cliches about the fantastic sensation of freefall. Apparently, Jack had set some kind of state record for the oldest person to jump from 14,000 feet. <laughs> like a bird, he had said to the man interviewing him, his arms spread wide, and Helen thought, yes, Jack, you fucking idiot, like a bird, like a dead one. <laughs> Jack explained that in the past two months, he and Gloria had climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and swum with sharks in Australia. Helen laughed when she heard this. Who is this man, she wondered. How does someone who's unnerved by the balcony of a cruise ship tap into the courage required to jump out of an airplane? What upset Helen most was that Jack was willing to do something that truly frightened him in order to impress a woman other than herself. Oh, Jack, she thought, you bold prick, you purveyor of sleepless nights, you architect of this broken heart. I hope you land on your face. Thanks. Thank you. For those of you who have never seen an issue of The Rattling Wall before, each uh, book is illustrated by a single artist. And The Rattling Wall issue four was illustrated by Ken Garduno. And our art director is here tonight, Mark Dishler. So I'd like to give a round of applause to those two. Our next reader tonight is Ron Gutierrez. Uh, he is co-creator, yeah, Ron fan club back here. <laughs> co-creator and co-host of Tertulia, a quarterly literary salon held in private homes. His fiction has appeared in the anthologies Sex by the Book and Texas Told'em. He has a degree from Pomona College and studied creative writing in the UCLA Extension Writers Program. He's recently completed a novel set in Solvang and inspired by the PBS series Antiques Roadshow. Please welcome Ron. <laughs> This is a couple of pages in. Uh, Maricela is a single mother, uh, Latina engineer, whose teenage daughter has gone missing. And at the same time, she's offered a very unusual side job. After work, I followed Roger downtown LA and northeast into Mount Washington. 
My car complained up Canyon Vista Drive, and I watched my headlights navigate bends of dense trees, bungalows, and modernist houses. Roger had told me what these parts were for before we got in our cars, and now I felt my heart drumming past the world of aerospace and military specs, weapons and jets, and pounding me into a whole new sandbox. Machining was a universe ruled by science and physics, the glory of the finished product. But sometimes it was the aftermath of production, an industrial drum full of iron shavings that showed the poetry to me. I could only stare at the shapes glistening with danger because I, if I gave in to my desire to dig into it, I'd rip my hands to shreds. Roger parked in front of a metal gate with the words Tree Haven engraved on a nameplate. Moonlight illuminated shin-deep ivy I was sure harbored rats. I kept to the middle of the walkway until we got to the house. We ascended the porch steps and Roger opened the double doors. I stepped inside and I heard it in the next room. The hairs on my neck stood like iron filings reacting to a magnet. I pretended not to be in a hurry to see the machine or invade the privacy of its owner. It sounded like a punch press on our shop floor, steady, rhythmic, but without the final bang when the hydraulic ram descended and punched out a part. It could loosen my feelings if I happened to be walking next to it at that moment. As Roger talked, I kept feeling the tendons in my shoulders brace for that final sound that never came. Her name was Drusilla. His aunt, one of 31 people in the country, still living in a negative pressure ventilator, an iron lung. She lay prostrate with her head sticking out of what looked like a deep front-loading washing machine. I thought of Cadena screwing up her life, but I was grateful like the day she was born that she had functioning arms and legs to explore life on her own terms, even if she was too young and stupid to understand the consequences. Roger explained to his aunt who I was, that I'd be making spare parts for her iron lung. The woman was in her 60s and spoke in moist, fibrous tangles. At first she sounded unhindered by the machine, but later I could tell how adept she was at choosing the length of her sentences, grabbing onto a verbal railing every time her lungs emptied. Every few seconds, a pressure valve above her lung pulled counterclockwise from the top like when I take nopales off the produce scale. I leaned down to Drusilla. Who lives here with you? She spoke right away, her eyes gentle on me. I have a caretaker, and my sister Lonnie's here until 10. She's sick today. I got closer. <coughs> I listened to the machinery give her every last breath she had coming to her. I'll do it. I got home, and there were two messages each from my mother, my oldest sister, and Cadena's father. He told them everything, and of course they were hysterical. They said I was selfish and una stupida for not telling them, not calling the police. If they didn't hear from me from by 9 p.m., they said they'd call the police, like I'd let that happen. My daughter's name and picture on the news, me sobbing and begging for her return like she was two years old, or like I was one of these people who murders their kids then acts terrified and tries to get away with it. Claro que no. We don't raise weak children in my family. Cadena might be too headstrong for her own good, but she was not a victim. I called them back and explained that Cadena's friend in Long Beach had seen her and I was gonna give her some more time. My daughter is fine, I said in the same measured phrases with each of them. I named her Cadena because she's a chain to me, delicate like jewelry, but strong when she needs to be. 
I told them to stop embarrassing themselves with their hyperventilating calls, and since they like to act religious, to recite the oraciones if they wanted to give suggestions to someone. Roger insisted I live in the guest house on the weekends so I could have constant access to the machine and be there when the nurse came for general care duties. I knew I had to calm down my mother, so I called to remind her that when I found out I was pregnant, I ran away for almost a month myself, and Cadena had only been gone for nine days. I tried to make it true when I said I trusted her, and that she was smarter than I was at her age, and that this was how she'd learned the world wouldn't give her anything for free. This was between Cadena and me. She was trying to belittle me. I would not stoop to that. My mind, like heat-treated steel, was a tempered material. It was honed by math and physics. Maybe I'd always be working class and struggling, but I would never be in a pobrecita crying on Channel 7 News. <laughs> and the truth was, chingado, I was fascinated by these parts I was designing. I was helping someone who really needed help. Maybe others after her. If the other people living in, in these things were anything like this woman, none of them were about to give them up to the more invasive systems of tubes stuck down the throat, or even tracheotomies. This woman was as free of needles, tubes, and straps as I was. She had her pride, and she wanted to stay that way, with my help. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Our next reader tonight is George Ducker. I'm looking for George. Are you around? Okay. George Ducker's writing has appeared in The Rumpus, The Los Angeles Times, Hobart, The Believer, and Book Forum. Please welcome George. Yeah. All right. Thank you all for coming. This is the biggest crowd I have ever been a part of here. This is really cool. Um, and thank you, Michelle, for having me and us. All right, here we go, hold on, where is it? Here it is. This is called Federal Express Field, and this goes out to the, um, <clears throat> to the Washington Redskins. Um, <laughs> beast water on the dash, stumped with tiny feet. It's Memorial Day and Donovan wheels the truck right into the middle of Oak Street. Kills the engine, three cars behind, honking, more honking. Eventually they get the hint, reversing. We've got frozen tomato sauce to unload. On the Lord's work, with the door gawked up, the ramp descending, the low whine of every single AC unit on full blast, silver window droplets in the heft, our lift gate giving up on us. We've got pizza for you every day. We work on holidays. How's about you unfold some cardboard? Like James Davis, you want to get drafted and go down third week like a buckled horse? Clemson, Cleveland, the row of window shades above. Orange is two colors of understanding. Tomato sauce is blood on your hands. Donovan's got his tattoo all picked out for Friday. It's Cincinnatus with a plow. He can, flex, he can flex his trick knee like the curling pedal of a bike. You guys back in that caprice can lay on that horn as long as you like. <laughs> um, thank you. It's weird when you're staring through the microphone at the thing you're reading. I'm not going to do that this time. Um, this is called Rehoboth Photobooth. The mosquito is a buoy pulled on simple strings, heavy with the day's blood, the minutes guessing, powering the wings that make it ocean-wide, the pull of those dusty, debonair things, a feather to a fat leg, 
a sash of skin crammed open by the breeze. When, just when, did they decide it brings disease? Late at night, the wind has snapped us shut. The cliff's face raised up old and bare of trees, spindly pavings winding up to a pinnacle of not very much at all and then back down. The baby's bed was dismantled by degrees, and now we pry, we pry, we sleep like stones on snails in this hot that never stops, and this tremendous weather tossing us each morning onto rocks. Look up there, will you? At the sky riding, at that lapping pelican, or is it laughing? Um, this is called Wellfleet Carriage. Um, yeah. An excellent gathering of moss at the timeshare. The dormer window sprayed with pine, sand from the sexy beachgoers who made it their place this May. Please do notice the handprints on the wall there. They must have done it standing up, but she kept all the rest of the wall on her back when they left, or the girl was invisible. Or the guy simply alone and pissing his way uphill elsewhere. Maybe the Stevens place. The Stevens told me later about the severed basketball netting wrapped around the mailbox. Scary, they said, like an octopus. My hand burned later on an ember. Thinking back, how could they have done it standing up? He had at least three heads on her. You can tell by the footprints. And where do you find scissors on the beach in April? As for me, I've always preferred it standing up. And then this is the, thank you, this is, um, this is, this is the last one. So thank you guys and thanks for your patience. This is called Buffalo Marlboro. See, I found this Damien Hurst tie clip. It's a dot, a small thing, a circle, in general laxative pink, but the postal rates have climbed $1.75 and the transport takes longer than you'd think. Larry, I call women late at night when I shouldn't. So it seemed best to hand deliver it, and I'm thankful you were still living in the flowery gulch. It was hard to tell from all the other houses, but I heard you, I heard you holler at the server. Hearing, like, hearing that you'd like Ed's thing at the head of your bedspread seemed very sensible for the evening. Shall we fix our hands behind our backs and wait? I'll wait a day. I'll wait too. But what is there to do with a bloody telephone, Larry? Is it a symbol? Could it be the end of service? Larry, I'm afraid to be alone at night. Despite the oven-scented candles by my feet, I've known the cool touch of the skeleton's third hand, Buffalo, 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 Marlboro Man, which is to say that bison from New York State fool other bison from New York State. Read about it in the trades. Don't smoke, please, Mr. Broad. It's bad for the guests. The television emerges right out of the wall. Forgive me, as I never really got around to college, but I can spot the Lakers from a mile away with their usual chump ball. <laughs> Larry, I'm not used to talking to married women, and I always forget to check the ring. Thank you. You guys don't freak out. We have more red wine. Okay, these two bottles are gone, but we have more. It's fine. Uh, thank you so much, George. I really like audiences that clap for every poem, so you're on my good list tonight. That's right. Started with Manaz, we rolled right over into George. It's good. Uh, we have two more readers for you tonight. Our next reader is Ben Laurie. 
Ben's Fables and Tales have appeared in the New Yorker on NPR's This American Life and live at Selected Shorts. His book, Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day, was a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers Program selection. Please welcome Ben. This is it, right? This is the one. Okay. Oh, hey, Jay Ryan. Um, okay, can you hear me? My voice sucks. Tommy, can you hear me? Okay, I trust Tommy. Tommy, can you hear Does anyone know what page I'm on? Okay, here we go, 109. So these stories are short, so I'm going to read two of them. This one is called The Dodo. <clears throat> Once there was a dodo, and he died with the rest. But then he suddenly got back up again. And he started running around saying, hey, look at me. Everybody, I'm a dodo, and I'm alive. <laughs> of course, no one believed him, for the dodos were all dead. The dodos are all dead, they said. You, bird, must be a chicken. <laughs> so act like a chicken, they said. The dodo was confused. He didn't know what to do. For a while, he kept on insisting, but I'm a dodo, he said. I I'm a dodo, I am. But the people just laughed and then ignored him. So finally, the dodo gave it up. Maybe I'll just pretend to be a chicken, he said, just for a while on a temporary basis, just to see how it goes. So the dodo did some research into the whole chicken phenomenon, <laughs> and then he started to practice. He got pretty good at going buck, 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 and bobbing his head back and forth. It wasn't a very interesting existence, being a chicken, but it was better than being laughed at and scorned. And in time, the dodo was very good at it. He even won a few awards. He saw a big banner out front. The banner said, a celebration of dodos. So the dodo walked in and strolled around. The dodo learned all about the history of dodos, where they were from and what they ate and all that. It was nothing that the dodo hadn't always known before, but it seemed somehow he'd forgotten it. Near the end of the exhibit, the dodo came to a diorama. There were replicas of his ancestors behind glass. And below it explained that the dodos were all dead, and the dodo became very sad. But I'm a dodo, the dodo said, and I'm here, I'm alive. Why don't these people understand that? Then the dodo caught sight of his own reflection in the glass, and what he saw was a chicken staring back. Oh my God, said the dodo, looking down at himself. He saw his chicken wings, his chicken feet. How did this happen, the dodo said. I'm a dodo. This isn't true. This isn't me. So the dodo went home and did some soul searching. And he decided that things had to change. So he stopped bobbing his head around and saying, bok, 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 bok. He walked around like he was a dodo again. He didn't care that he looked like a chicken. He knew what he was inside. And what's more, he wasn't shy about talking about it. I'm a dodo, he screamed at everyone. You understand? 
Of course, people laughed just like they had before, but this time the dodo didn't care. I'm a dodo, I'm a dodo, I'm a dodo, he screamed, and he pecked at people's knees when they ignored him. In no time at all, the news got around. There's a crazy chicken out there attacking people, people said. So they got up a committee, well, a posse, really. We'll go teach that chicken a lesson, they said. The dodo saw them coming from a mile away, but he didn't run, he didn't hide. I'm a dodo, he yelled, I am not a chicken. Oh yeah, the posse said and drew their knives. The dodo looked at them and then finally he smiled. All right, he said and went forth to fight. And the posse came at him, but the dodo didn't take flight and his true feathers shone brightly in the light. <clears throat> Thanks. This one is not about a dodo. This is called Missing. A man wakes up one morning to find that both his feet are missing. What on earth, he says. He looks down at the stumps. He reaches out and touches them. They're not sore. Hmm, he says. Well, I guess I should get to work. He rises awkwardly from the bed. Suddenly, he starts to laugh. Guess I don't have to worry about shoes, he says. At work, no one seems to notice the difference. The man hobbles about uneasily. It is hard to balance on just his stumps, but he manages to carry out his duties. At the end of the day, the man feels strangely proud. Best day's work I ever did, he says. Absolutely no doubt about it. He stumps on home and goes to bed. The next morning he wakes up. The next morning the man wakes up and he has no legs. This is going to be harder, he says. He lies there trying to think of a plan of action. Guess I'll walk on my hands, he finally says. The man tests it out in the living room. It works, but his palms start to hurt. Guess I'll have to wear gloves, he says. Luckily he finds some in a drawer. Did you lose some weight, the people say at work? You look different somehow. No, says the man who is upside down. Though in a way, he says, I guess I did. Once again, the man does a good day's work. The only real difficulty he encounters is, is that he has to put the gloves on to go anyplace and then take them off again to actually work. And as his job requires him to do both these things, it is rather an inconvenience. But what can you do, the man says to himself. I guess this is just how it is. The next day the man wakes up and he's ahead. Just ahead, that's all he is. He tries to crane his neck to look down at himself, but he has no neck, so he can't do it. So instead he simply lies there, ahead on the pillow, and stares straight up at the ceiling. Well, here we are, the man thinks to himself. And, well, there's the ceiling. The phone rings at about 9.15. It's probably work, the man thinks. He feels bad about not picking up, but what can he do? He's just ahead. At about 9.30, the phone rings again. The man looks at it on the nightstand and frowns. I'm indisposed, he yells to it loudly, but it keeps ringing again and again. Damn it, the man thinks. It's hard to just lie here with all that incessant noise. He rocks a little bit and tumbles off the bed. 
The phone falls as he knocks into the nightstand. Hello, the man says into the receiver. I'm sick, so this better be good. Help, says a voice. Help me, I'm trapped. What? Who is this, the man says. It's me, says the voice. It's me, you moron. Please, you have to get me out of here. The voice sounds familiar. Out of where, says the man. But there's no answer, just a horrible strangling sound. Oh my God, says the man. He looks to the door. He rolls over and bangs his head against it. But the door is locked and he can't reach the knob. Then he sees the crack that runs underneath it. If I could only squeeze through that crack, the man thinks. And he tries to flatten himself. He strains really hard and then suddenly, poof, he's under the door and out of his head. The man flies down the hallway. He's a thing of the air. I never knew it could be like this, he thinks. He zips out the door and off down the street. I'm coming, I'm coming, he thinks. The man zooms across town. He sees the world as he goes, everyone going this way and that. The sun is shining and there are birds in the air. Up ahead is the office. He flies inside. And once inside, there he is, sitting behind a desk in a gray suit, perfectly still. He still holds the telephone clenched in one fist. He looks awful, zombified, and pale. Hang on, the man thinks, and he slips inside. Move your muscles, he thinks. You can do this. He turns to his co-worker. You want to go dancing, he says. Sure, she says, and they finish up business. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Our last reader tonight is Erica Schickel. Erica is the author of You're Not... Ben's taller than I am. Hard as that is to imagine. Let's see. Erica is the author of You're Not the Boss of Me. Her opinions, essays, and reviews have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, LA Weekly, the Los Angeles City Beat, Bus Magazine, LA Observed, The Daily Beast, and The Huffington Post. She's currently at work on a full-length memoir, Unsupervised. Please welcome Erica. guys. Wow, this is huge. <laughs> it's funny you don't notice when you're sitting in the first row. Um, yeah, the book I'm working on is called Unsupervised, subtitle Tales from the Bummer Zone. Um, I dedicate this reading to uh, the memory of Philip Seymour Hoffman. December 1979. My boarding school roommate, Anne, lived in the Dakota. You all know that the Dakota is a building in New York City. I just want to set that up for you. Okay. Uh -huh, in the Dakota, and we hung out there a lot over winter break. The apartment was cavernous with wide hallways, dark servants' quarters, dumb waiters. Anne's room lay in utter disarray beneath vaulted ceilings. Sex pistols, Clash, and Elvis Costello posters obscured dark scrollwork. A window seat was piled with made-folded laundry and Christmas loot right up to its leaded glass panes. Anne's room was a glorious illustration of the kind of gorgeous excess that parental guilt can yield. Anne and I were sprawled on her bed with magazines when there was a knock on the door. Identify, Anne called out. Max Wexler, said a low voice. You may enter, Anne commanded, without looking up from her vogue. 
Max Wexler stepped into the room. He was Anne's stepbrother, a brilliant, charismatic kid who would probably be diagnosed with ADHD today, but instead was being kicked down a line of elite East Coast boarding schools for various drug offenses. He was tall, Sephardic, and stupidly handsome. He had a Nerf football in his long-fingered hands that he tossed and spun idly. He looked around the room, seeming to see nothing of interest. Then he looked back at us. Want to smoke a joint on the roof? Anne and I jumped up, stuck our feet in our shoes, and followed him out. Max was obsessed with the Dakota and its history and gave us a guided tour up to the roof. Construction on the building began in October 25th of, 19, of 1880, Max said, punching the elevator button. It was finished four years later, almost to the day, on October 27th, 1884. It was designed by the same architectural firm that did the Plaza Hotel. I'd been on a lot of roofs in my time in New York's in, in my time in New York City rooftops are usually where the party is I had danced on sizzling hot tar paper from the Bowery to Park Avenue I'd seen pigeon coops and swimming pools laundry lines and Zen gardens but I had never seen or imagined a roof like this one it was a city unto itself a riot of spires flights of iron steps leading to different levels the famous pointed dormers which were fetching accents from the street stood like small witch huts, each sporting its own terracotta spandrel. Max led us over to a filigreed balustrade that lay like widow's lace against the rising October moon. Central Park spread, spread before us like dirty burlap, its lights blinking up at us through naked trees. We could see all of it from Harlem to 59th Street. They named it the Dakota because it was as remote as the Dakotas. Nothing else was here when it was built, Max said, leading us into the windbreak of a turret and pulled a sucrets tin out of his pocket. It held a number of pre-rolled pin joints. He lit one and took a deep drag, speaking as he held his hit. The building was commissioned by Edward Clark, head of the Singer's Sewing Machine Company. Is that the same Clark that built the museum? Our boarding school was up the road from the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. The girls' soccer team played on a muddy field right behind the building, known for its world-class collection of Impressionist paintings. Very good, Schickel. Sterling was the son. You're smarter than the average soft dog. They say, they say Papa Clark's penthouse apartment floors are inlaid with sterling silver. Max looked me in the eye and lowered his voice to a dead serious timbre. Take nothing for granted. Everything is connected. Read history. <laughs> I almost couldn't bear how attractive I found him. He was exactly the kind of boy I liked. The dungeon masters and conspiracy theorists with keen encyclopedic intelligences, low GPAs, and deep brown eyes. Boys so burdened by their own brilliant complexity that they dedicated their days to killing as many brain cells as possible in a misguided attempt to suffer less. I alone understood their pain, <laughs> shared their interests. I would meet them on the fields of their dreams and enact their fantasies with them. Max, I'm freezing my ass off, Anne said, hopping in place, flicking her cigarette butt over the edge of the railing. Let's go back inside. The joint was just mood enhancement, ladies. It's not what we came for. Follow me. Max led us around a long, winding path that described the U of the building, up and down tiny staircases, through passageways, over to the western arm of the building, to the inner balustrade that had a gut-churning view down to the courtyard below. 
All of the apartments in the Dakota were laid out so the living rooms were given the best views and the service rooms looked over the courtyard. It was just after eight and we could see the shapes of people moving around in their kitchens, getting dinner ready or cleaning it up. This was my New York, the one I had seen from the high chair in my mother's kitchen, lives stacked into a grid, each with its own flickering blue light, all of us executing the mundane tasks of living. I wondered what could possibly be of interest here, but it hardly mattered because Max had come up behind me. See where that gutter runs? Max pointed to a vertical pipe running down the inside of the building. I felt the heat of him down my back and every inch of my skin burst into goosebumps. One window down from the roof and three windows left from the gutter. He put his head close to mine and pointed over my shoulder. I could smell him. A bouquet of tie stick and camel straights, Shetland sweater and boy funk. I struggled to keep my excited breath inaudible. I counted over and down to a window where a female figure stood at a sink looking down. I couldn't see her hands or face as her long dark hair was in the way, but clearly she was rinsing dishes and couldn't push it back. A shadowy figure moved around in the room next to her, but the lights weren't as bright in that room, so I couldn't make out who it was. Max, Anne moaned. This is stupid. You're already in trouble with the building for this. Max handed me a small pair of binoculars. Here, get a really good gander. I dialed in the focus. The person in the living room had shoulder-length hair, but I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman until he walked into the kitchen carrying some dishes. There, Max said, do you see? The man put the dishes down on the counter beside the sink, reached over and pushed the woman's hair out of her face. It was a tender gesture, and I could feel its intimacy even at that distance. Max was standing behind me, his breath in my ear. The man stood behind the woman and put his arms around her, stepping into the light over the sink, and I saw that he was tall and narrow-framed with shaggy hair and round glasses. The details rearranged themselves into iconography, and I suddenly understood what I was looking at and gasped. It was John Lennon and Yoko Ono. I was looking at love. December 8th, 1980. I was down in the library for study hall, ostensibly working on my Hamlet paper, but in fact procrastinating over the November issue of Rolling Stone, which had a cover story on Joni Mitchell. I was deep into it when I hit the jump and flipped through to the back of the book to finish the article. I came across a full-page ad for John Lennon and Yoko Ono's new album, Double Fantasy. The ad was simply the album cover, a black and white photo of John and Yoko kissing. It framed them from the shoulders up. Yoko's face was tilted up to him, her eyes closed, and she was bathed in a holy light, a light I could only assume emanated from Lennon himself. A byproduct of kissing a living god full on the mouth would, of course, be good lighting. Yoko's skin glowed and was perfect. And John, oh, his face. It was turned slightly away from us toward the kiss, and there was such intimacy in that angle, such a gentleness in his lips as they gingerly touched Yoko's. The kiss itself was almost chaste. The sex in the kiss was in John's hand, which was at the back of her neck, not so much pulling her into the kiss, for she was already completely there, but just enjoying the feel of her neck and her hair and her scent. I remember seeing his hand in her hair that night as I spied like a thief from the roof of the Dakota. I had stolen a moment of their love, and I pulled it out of the secret drawer in my mind where I kept my trophies, the signs, clues, moments that I was collecting and collaging into a deeply romantic worldview. 
That moment at the sink was the only evidence I had that love of this kind was possible. I wanted that love more than anything else in life, love that intimate, urgent, and constant. I wanted love that it had its own rules that could not be diminished or defined by the approval or approbation of others. I wanted a big, singular, naked love that would bathe me in holy light, banish my solitude, define my life, and show me who I was. I tore the page out of the magazine and took it back to the door and, and showed it to my roommate. That's cool, she lisped at me through her retainer, and I could see she didn't get it. I climbed into my bunk bed and taped the picture to the wall. I stared at it in the half-light as I drifted off to sleep. That night, I dreamt crazily about John and Yoko. It was one of those dreams where they are there, 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 there. It was a pursuit dream, but the details of it are lost because Anne shook me out of it. She was in her nightgown and had her contacts out. She blinked at me like a frightened possum in the dirty light of dawn. What's going on, I asked, trying to remember where I was. Erica, Erica, Max just called from the Dakota. Somebody shot John Lennon out in front of the building. Holy shit, Erica, he's dead. There were no marimbas playing in Central Park that day, no drum circles or jugglers or funky roller skaters, just stricken people moving like zombies across Sheep's Meadow. The park was hard and slippery with the first frost of the year. We made our way toward the space just inside the West 72nd Street entrance, which was now being called Strawberry Field. It stood in the shadow of the Dakota. I brought my 35-millimeter camera and I photographed the stricken faces around me in black and white. Faces were swollen with tears or locked up behind aviator shades. Couples were holding on to each other's nails dug into each other's parka sleeves. Little kids carrying John's picture as their parents wept. By 1.55, Strawberry Field was jammed with people. Someone got on a loudspeaker and explained that at exactly 2 p.m., we, along with millions of people around the world, would observe 10 minutes of silence in Lenin's honor. The countdown began, and there was a great rustle as everyone settled in, and then, and then a gong sounded, and the park was filled with a deep blanketing silence. Thousands of people stood perfectly still and bent their heads in quiet reflection. The sound of traffic from Central Park rose to fill the air. I bent my head as I had seen mourners do in movies. I had never lost anyone other than my grandfather who was remote and leaden and whose death happened far away in Wisconsin. I thought about Grandpa stuck in our beanbag chair yelling at us to hoist him out of it. Wait, wait, I wasn't thinking about John. How many minutes had it been? The minutes were immeasurable as I had no watch, believing as I did then that time was a construct invented to control people and watches were little more than handcuffs. I didn't know what to think or how to feel, so I peeked around to see if I could look at somebody else's watch or take a cue. But everyone was bundled up, hands buried in warm pockets, heads bent, their lips moving silently in prayer. How was it that everybody knew how to do this except for me? Where had they learned it? I stared up at the Dakota. I wondered if Yoko were watching us from her window. Maybe Max was a couple of floors above her, spying on us from the roof through his binoculars. Could he see me? Maybe even John was watching all of us from somewhere higher than that. I could not imagine where. The answers to those questions lay on the other side of death. I had been raised an orthodox atheist. All I knew for sure was that Yoko would never feel John's hand on her neck again. That thought toppled me into the mouth of grief. I barked out a sob, startling myself. 
I was crying, and my sobs joined the chorus that was rising around me. The sound yanked me comfortably outside of myself once more and allowed me to marvel at myself in the moment. I didn't know I could feel this much about anything. I observed my own mourning and wondered if this was what it felt like to actually feel something. Ten minutes is a long time. I sniffled and stared at the pavement, and the tiny rocks fused into the concrete. Out of nowhere, I thought of a film I'd seen on an all-school trip to the Smithsonian Museum called The Power of Ten. It showed a couple on a picnic blanket in a park and zoomed away from them by powers of ten out into the universe, then zoomed inward into their bodies. I imagined that the power of ten camera was on me. The camera backed out into a wide shot, my blue parka becoming a spot in the multicolored blob of the crowd. And there was the park, as I had seen it that night from the Dakota, a frizz of barren trees only this time soaked in the weak tea of the low winter sun. The park melted into the grid of the city where Everyone had gone momentarily still. Then there was Manhattan floating like a dirty penny off the shore of the United States. The continent itself was a mad dinghy, sinking under the weight of our collective grief. The power of ten yanked the earth itself into a mute speck spinning an infinite space where all the collective prayers for John and Yoko were but a tiny squeak unheard by God because, of course, there was no God. The macro held a future I couldn't and didn't want to see, one in which I would never be Yoko to Max's John. Instead, I would be kicked out of boarding school for sleeping with a music teacher, and Max would be shot and killed in a drug deal in the East Village. But the part I could see was so barren in its vast hopelessness, a world robbed of John Lennon, that I quickly reversed, turning the power of 10 camera in the other direction. I focused the lens on my parka and went inward. There was down and derma, veins that ran like a subway map under a grocery bag of skin. Beneath that was my skeleton, my skull, an abandoned building on the major Deegan, its windows punched out. Buried deep inside my rusting ribcage was a dump site of ringding wrappers and spermicidal jelly, loose change and dirty snow, cigarette butts and chewed up fingernails. If I had dumped it all onto the Central Park grass, the junk of me, it would have made a mess that nobody would want to touch. I wasn't Yoko. I would never be Yoko. Some were anointed with specialness, and others simply were not. The first sweet, simple chords of Imagine floated into the air, signaling the end of the ten minutes, but nobody moved. We all just stood there, listening to John's anthem of love and hope, trying to imagine what possibly could be next. I shivered as the notes of the song blew through the interstices of my ribs. Thank you. Thank you, Erica. One more round of applause for all of our readers. I also, before we disperse, just want to say thank you to all of you. I founded the Rattling Wall three years ago, and I never really get over how many people come out to support this journal, and I'll never be able to really tell all of you individually how much it means to me, so thanks to all of you, too. Um, we have cake. We have more booze. It's been talked about. It's still here, so please, please come and eat it. If you want to see your writing in the Rattling Wall, I'd also like to talk to you about that, so you can either come up and say hello to me.
to me or if you'd like to read our submission guidelines online, we're at therattlingwall.com. Many thanks to Skylight Books. So if you would like to find out also more about Narrow Books, you can also buy The Rattling Wall online. You can do that at narrowbooks.com. And more about the literary nonprofit that funds The Rattling Wall, Penn Center USA, at pennusa.org. I'm just going to believe that all of you are going to remember all of those websites and that we're just good now. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, the Rattling Wall is continuing on to Book Soup next week, February 11th. So if you want to come and see us on the other side of town, uh, we're going to have another lineup of readers there. So please do. Thanks so much. Have a good night. Thank you.